0: Hi, this is Nate Wegiehout, producer of the WORT Local News. We know we're one of Madison's best podcasts, but let's make it official. Nominations for Madison Magazine's Best of Madison competition are open through the end of the month. Help nominate this show in the best podcast category. Just go to tinyurl.com slash votewart and cast your vote for the WORT Local News in the podcast category. And you can nominate us every day through the end of the month. So vote early and vote often, maybe when you're listening to this show. Final voting will take place in June. Thanks in advance.
1: This is Christian Knutsen and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
2: Republican lawmakers introduced a bill that would expand the definition of illegal strip searches in Wisconsin schools, reports the Associated Press. This bill comes after a 2022 incident in the Shering School District, where Superintendent Kelly Casper told six girls to strip down to their underwear so she could search them for vape devices. She was charged with false imprisonment. The charges for Casper were dropped because current law says strip searches happen when the searcher sees or touches a person's genitalia. These girls were still in their underwear. The bill would expand the definition so that this kind of search would also not be allowed.
1: Two Republican state lawmakers have proposed a bill that would undo a restrictive Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling on open records, the AP reports. The bill would essentially reverse a ruling from the state's top court last summer, which limited when people who sue to obtain open records can get attorney's fees. In that decision, the justices ruled 4-3 that records requesters could only be awarded lawyer costs if a judge issued a formal ruling. But records requesters could not get those fees covered without a ruling, including in cases when the records were turned over before being ordered to by a court. The court's liberal justices dissented then, saying that decision would make it much more difficult for people to get open public records. Now, the sponsoring lawmakers are seeking to return to the earlier standard when requesters could recover their costs if an agency turned over records voluntarily after going to court but before a formal decision. This bill is circulating for co-sponsorship, after which it will be formally introduced to both chambers.
2: Governor Tony Evers will deliver his budget address tomorrow. Today, his office released more major policy planks in his proposed budget. Evers says he'll introduce a proposal to expand school funding by $2.6 billion. That's $600 million more than Republicans say they would reject, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Hundreds of school districts have proposed raising taxes to better fund schools. This funding would increase reimbursements for special education costs and increase their revenue limit. It would also add more free lunches and expand school mental health services. The GOP says this plan is impractical and calls it a, quote, wish list item.
1: The city of Madison is launching a bilingual community connector program. The goal of this program is to connect underrepresented voices with city government and build trust between residents and city officials. Enoch Meliarejo and Holly Chen will serve as community connectors. They will help those with language barriers experience a more personal connection to the bilingual services that the city offers. The city is launching this plan to improve their relationship with its diverse population, to decrease language barriers, and make all residents feel at home.
2: The Madison Plan Commission voted to redefine family in the city's zoning code. This change would allow the same number of occupants in renter and owner houses. It would also increase the number of non-family occupants allowed to live in a house together, according to a report from the Cap Times. This vote came after Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and several alders asked the plan commission to delay the vote until after the April election amid ongoing controversy over it. Opponents say the redefinition of family zoning will push families out of Madison neighborhoods, arguing it will increase costs and encourage college students to live in more areas of the city. Supporters say this will decrease homelessness and benefit immigrants who rent together. They argue this is needed in a time when there are rising issues with a lack of affordable housing. To actually make this zoning change, it needs to be approved by the city council, and it's slated to head to the council in two weeks.
1: Two Madison high schools will offer an advanced placement course in African American history and culture this fall, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Bell Phillips Memorial and East High Schools will be part of a national pilot program that has generated criticism among conservatives. The coursework would explore African-American history to show the diversity of black communities. But amid pushback from Republicans in Florida and elsewhere, the College Board refined course material to exclude topics like black queer studies and critical race theory. Golden Mayer High School in Milwaukee is already piloting this program.
2: The spring 2023 primary is one week from today, but that's not stopping some early birds from early voting. According to the latest statistics issued by the Madison City Clerk's office this morning, nearly 21,000 absentee ballots have been issued in Madison. A little less than half of those ballots have been returned. Meanwhile, around 2,500 people have voted in person. That's a bit more than 1% of the total number of registered voters in Madison. You can go to any voting Location listed at thecityofmadison.com slash clerk through Sunday, February 19th, to vote early in person. The deadline to request an absentee ballot by mail is 5 p.m. this Thursday. To figure out where and how to vote, head to myvote.wi.gov. And now on to today's top stories.
1: Family and supporters are demanding that the state and law enforcement agencies do more to find a Mason Madis- missing Madison man. WORT reporter Greg Jabosky has more. On
3: early Saturday afternoon, around 15 protesters gathered at the governor's mansion on Cambridge Road to demand answers in the November 19th disappearance of Madison resident Christopher Miller. The 27-year-old Miller was driving back to Madison from Rockford, Illinois, according to his family, in the early morning of November 19th. Then, according to a November 22nd media release from the Rock County Sheriff's Office, quote, On November 19, 2022, around 2.20 a.m., the Wisconsin State Patrol attempted to stop a vehicle for speeding. The driver, later identified as Christopher R. Miller, crashed into a traffic light in Janesville and continued driving until the vehicle became disabled on Interstate 3990 near Avalon Road. At that time, Miller exited the vehicle and fled on foot and, to our knowledge, has not been seen or heard from since." The media release then goes on to say a wide search for Miller was conducted by Rock County sheriffs with help from the state police and the Department of Natural Resources. This has been the one public statement on the matter since Miller's disappearance three months ago. Tammy James, Christopher Miller's mother, was at Saturday's protest and had this to say.
1: So we're here because we want answers and we wanna sit down with Rock County and State Patrol from their reports because there's so many holes and a lot of things are not, adding up. They won't do another ground search because they don't have enough credible evidence. He's been missing now for 84 days. To so us, that's enough credible evidence. They will not search. So that's why we're here. We want another search. We want a wider search. We want different organizations, if possible, to be able to search.
3: The protesters were demanding that the governor expand the search for Miller using state resources. Mallory Durst, Christopher Miller's fiance, described what she experienced in the wee hours of November 19th.
4: I was woken up around 3:30 a.m. on the 19th to state patrol showing up at my house, pretty much asking like who was in my vehicle, that it was involved in a pursuit and a lot of like minimal details at that time he was on his way home from madison from his mom's in rockford they said that he got into an accident never blatantly said that he fled on foot until i asked where his car or where the car was and they said it was towed didn't realize that they had his phone at that point in time either and then kind of the next i immediately started calling his mom and tried to get a hold of his brother for like hours and hours until about like 6 or 7 a.m when she finally picked up and then we started calling state patrol from there trying to figure out like what happened if he had been found and kind of get more details as to
3: his whereabouts. Durst and the family are unable to use Miller's phone to help in their own search.
4: So we actually can't get into the phone without the passcode and then they actually have the SIM card to his phone so okay. we haven't been able to see anything in it since we've gotten it back. We've so, only had it back for maybe three weeks.
3: So the cops have the data but you don't? Correct the family submitted a document request to police regarding the highway incident and search for Miller and later received some documentation and audio recordings, which they have provided to 6 o'clock news for review. The November 26th media release by Rock County says that the family first contacted police with a search request on November 21st, after which the search presumably started, but the family insists they were already requesting a search early on the 19th, and the official documentation indicates that a search was well underway on November 20th. A notation dated November 20th says, quote, Dane County calling, they advised their officer made contact with the mother. The officer's notes indicate State Patrol picked Christopher up, unquote. A dispatch call with a file name indicating it was made on November 20th discussed air support being sent toward the area, but with an officer warning the dispatcher, quote, right, but we're not going to communicate that to the family, unquote.
5: I see 168 just checked on for ASU. Is that where he's going?
3: Yeah, but
0: we're not going to communicate that to the right. family.
3: Right. I just wanted. Well, I just wanted market. to know. A 9/11 recording, based on a timestamp of around 5:30 p.m. on November 20th, was from an unnamed citizen reporting what appeared to be officers engaged in what he referred to as wrestling someone on the ground in the area.
6: Yeah. So it was kind of weird. I went by, saw a reflective vest to the like back, right rear of the vehicle, kind of out in the field, about 20 feet, and it was close to the ground, almost like he was.
3: I don't know wrestling
6: with somebody but you know it's dark so I just thought maybe somebody should check on him.
3: The family says they've received no explanation for these seeming discrepancies in the official narrative provided so far. Six o'clock news made multiple attempts to contact the officer named on the media release for comment but we have not received a response by airtime. Miller's mother had this to say.
1: The main concern is the fact that they disregarded his life. There is no urgency so we're just here being his voice
3: that was tammy james mother of christopher miller a medicine resident missing since november 19th of last year the rock county sheriff's office wrote on november 22nd that any information on miller's whereabouts can be called into the rock county 911 communication center non-emergency line at 608-757-2244 for their part miller's family and supporters have started the page Find Christopher Miller on Facebook. That's Find Christopher Miller on Facebook. For the 6 O'Clock News, I'm Greg Jabosky.
2: From state fairs to town celebrations, t- contests involving animals have long been among the attractions. But animal rights groups continue to call for an end to these events, citing issues of mistreatment and exploitation. These concerns are being raised again as a western Wisconsin town prepares for a controversial contest. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
7: Later this month, the western Wisconsin town holds an annual celebration that includes an event known as a chicken toss. Animal rights advocates say it's an example of entertainment across the country that comes at the expense of defenseless creatures. A key attraction at Ridgeland's Pioneer Days Festival involves a contest where chickens are tossed from a rooftop and attendees who catch a bird get to keep it. Kristen Trank, with the group Alliance for Animals, says the birds can become injured and there are no veterinarians on site to evaluate them. She argues it's time for this tradition to be replaced.
8: As a society, we, over
2: time and every day, are gaining a better understanding of the mental and physical impact that events like these have on animals.
7: She says similar events, such as greased pig competitions, add to the animals' trauma. Organizers and participants at the Ridgeland Festival have long argued that their event, described as chicken fly, is harmless fun as part of a celebration that brings much-needed revenue to the community. On a broader scale, some communities are changing their approach in light of growing awareness. For example, a county festival in California has replaced its greased pig competition with slippery watermelons. And Trank notes a lot of children attend these events, which is another reason it's important to send the right message.
2: How we treat animals is a demonstration of how we should have compassion for really for all living beings.
7: And her group also says the Chicken Toss underscores the need for Wisconsin to step up enforcement of its crimes against animals law, which includes a provision for mistreatment. An online petition is circulating calling for an end to the Wisconsin event. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection.
2: It's now 6, 19 p.m. and you're listening for the live local news on WORT.
1: With the spring 2023 primary election exactly one week away, we conclude our coverage of all the candidates running for Madison Alder in next week's election with Sammy Keelgee. A retired longtime resident of the West Side, Kilji spoke with WORT producer Weggy Hout about why he's running to be alder for Madison's 20th district.
0: The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 20 on Madison's West Side, containing Elver Park and the Green Tree neighborhood. Sammy Kielji is one of the four candidates running in that primary election, and he joins me now by phone. Sammy, thank you so much for talking with me.
9: Sure, good. So thank you very much for the introduction.
0: So just to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you?
9: I am a permanent immigrant from Pakistan, and I am right now in Madison, Wisconsin. I am a citizen of the United States, and I'm running for this post, which is uh, Common Council 20. And previously, I have a, my education up to like a master's in political science back home. And I worked here in different insurance companies like, you know, Mutual, American Family, WPS, and, and State Insurance, which is they call TERS, H-I-R-S-P. And I am 73-year-old man, and I'm running because I am retired now, and I want to pay back my dues to my community. And I am running right now to solve these small, small problem we have, like the school buses or some other things. And that's what I'm running. And this, is my I have my wife Nello. She's working hard, and uh, she's living with me. And we both are happy that I am running for this district to solve these little problems we have in our district.
0: And now let's get into some of those problems. What are the most pressing issues facing the entire city of Madison that you would want to address if elected Alder?
9: Yes, sir. The main thing is, look at this, the main reason. I'm living in a single-family home from the last 37 years. And uh, our taxes, property taxes, are going high all the time. They're so high, you no, know, it's not affordable, all the taxes. Not our district, but all the district, all the medicine. We have this big, huge problem. People can't pay their rents because the property tax are so high. So their rents are high. So that's why the main 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 reason for the running is I have to see this is the main problem we have in our district that people can't afford the rent, people can't afford that uh, taxes of their property. So that's why the main reason, sir, I'm running for this.
0: And now getting into a couple specific issues, uh, let's start with housing there. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see to bring more affordable housing here to Madison?
9: Okay, the thing is, we are paying a lot of taxes all over places. And now I can see they're developing a lot, this Madison, everywhere. You can see the construction is going on and all these, all mostly these apartments, They are not building houses for lower middle class people so they can afford it. There's no way they can buy a house. My son bought a house and it was about price was so high, I can't quote it. But the thing is was so high. So basically it's okay to build some apartments. And I like in my, my in my jurisdiction, in my constituency I heard they are building something on um, from Whitney way towards Schroeder road that corner of that they're trying to build some building there so and I see there's some buildings already there and they are they're, they're always complaining as a uber driver when they sit with me they always complain about the rent the rent of medicine so i took so the only thing is before there was section 8 and all these things but on the east side there are some houses people can go and buy our rent, but in Madison, the West Side, they are not building those affordable housing. Housing is very expensive. People can't go into the house. They're going with three, four kids into apartment, and that's not enough. So the, the to resolve this problem is, the so government should buy cheap rates land, and developer government should have. They're, I mean they they give it they, they give it to contact and develop it develop it develop it why city cannot develop itself the people get can get that cheaper houses they are not developing they can bring up these raw resources to develop themselves city is going to they're developing just that uh, lines of telephone electricity and uh, water thing and um, all these things basic things but they never try to involve. And they're selling the apartments or housing to the people that can fix the rates. Whatever the developer will fix it, it's fixed.
0: And now, Sammy, sort of pivoting a little bit now, back in 2018, the entire city saw widespread flooding. and, And since then, the city has taken some major steps to address stormwater management here in Madison, but some of those stormwater management projects have come under fire from some Madison residents. For example, the Song Creek Greenway Restoration Project, which is in District 9, right next to your district. How how do you weigh the need to address flooding and stormwater management against the wishes of your constituents?
9: No. so how we can control it? See, this is a basic question is for... Our civil engineers, okay. How many civil engineers city had this time? Can you, anybody can answer? Nobody can answer because civil engineering who designs all these roads and stuff, the lower level roads, I can see. I was, yesterday I was driving and I saw
1: there was a lot
9: of snow on the back road. People can't even get out. The, I saw the city bus was stuck. That was the snow. And the same way I saw all the flooded that night, I can tell you, I, see, I was working and I have to check there was a post on the far west side. There was a bank and uh, that's a different story. But the thing is, there was a lot of floods flood in, the, in the different areas. Floods, they were turnover. But anyway, but now the thing is how we can civil engineers. This is a word for the civil engineers. We have a lot of waterways. In my constituency, I can tell you there was a one waterway on the, it's not only my, but it's near to my, if you go, if you take that A-light drive, in the back of the a drive, you can see there's a big, huge, which is Seminole Highway, that area, this big reservoir. But that reservoir was overflowing. The same way is that uh, overflowing of that, uh, by the middle point road but for the small area where the ducks are sitting in all this football field and all these things, that was overflowing and do have any way to control this whole water to stop somewhere to accumulate it instead of it was going all lakes and here and there but mostly it was not easy because at that time that flood system was all the gutter systems which take the flood extra water they were all full and there was a lot of blockage in there and that's why all the flood we saw. So it is city's responsibility to control all that water by making a lot of reservoirs, small reservoirs, which is away from the city a little bit, and they can control the water.
0: And now, Sammy, just sort of wrapping up here, I want to touch on what are a few issues specifically facing District 20 here that you have heard from potential constituents?
9: Sure, I can tell you. The main things. look at that. My background, I'm sorry I didn't tell you before. I was a police officer. I was a law enforcement officer, crime control and all these things. I was a police officer back home. I worked in security when I was working with my insurance company, but on the side sides, on the, the weekends, I, I worked for the city of Madison as security too. What I figure out in my problems in my areas are, near my areas, is drugs. Main big problem for schooling, we have school, by the school, another school, like uh, we can see that uh, memorial school, there's another school, small school on the left hand, and people are going, the young kids are going because they have, some of them, the problem. I'm not saying everyone, but some of the problems, the dr- drug is the main thing. I saw as a security, I was dealing with these drug people, the homeless people. We have problems with the homeless right now. Not the homeless. The big problem is we call them panhandler, but it's a beggar. Panhandlers or beggars, are the same thing. It's not the words what uh, beggar made poem here. It's a, it's, it's a problem In the. We have a problem. They're standing on the crossing. Yeah. We can we cross standing on the crossing, and they are asking for that, and we can't do. We can't help. We can't help them. No, nobody asking them why are you are standing here. The traffic is jammed. They're going right and left, crossing everywhere. One problem. Drug is second problem. Third is our our new construction in our area. They're new subdivision. But they don't think about the people are coming up. There's a half-moon shape. Road is coming this way, like mine area. In um, uh, East Valley Ridge and West Valley Ridge, there's no... Like, for example, there's no stop sign. When we're getting out, car from the left side coming. Like if the new kid, uh, the other day, there was a uh, crash, there were bad because there's no sign. There's a camera up there from the county, but there's no signs for the kids, for the traffic, not for the kids, for everyone. So traffic signs is a big problem. Drug is a big problem. And then these people, like panhandle, standing all over the place. School is a problem. Okay, now look at that. My kids gone through the Fox School. Okay, they are graduated, they're gone, they're grown up, they have good jobs, really nice jobs, some of them, and they're thankful to the city also. But the thing is, you can see when the traffic is there in the, in the school, in the Fox School, when the, the people are dropping off, the kids are coming back, look at that, the parking is mess, the stop, the traffic is mess there. So little kids from, from elementary school. That's the problem. We have to see the parking for the new school they're building.
0: And we're going to have to leave it at that for today here. I've been uh, talking with Sammy Kielgi, one of the four candidates running in the spring primary election for District 20. Sammy, thank you so much for, for talking with me here today.
9: Yeah, sure. No problem. You're welcome, sir. Thanks for uh, having me.
2: The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful, here with my co-host, Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. The city of Madison just released data indicating traffic deaths and serious injuries have been decreasing over the last two years. This drop is partly due to the city's Vision Zero plan, which was launched in 2020 with the goal of bringing the city's traffic deaths down to zero by 2035. WORT reporter Abigail Levin spoke with Yang Tao, the head of traffic engineering for
10: the city, about this data. Traffic fatalities and serious injuries have declined over the past two years, dipping by 17% from 2020 to 2021 and another 13% in 2022. The city of Madison says that decrease is due to the launch of Vision Zero, an initiative to combat traffic-related crashes and injuries. For more on city's ongoing efforts to make Madison Street safe for pedestrians, bikers, buses, and drivers, I'm joined on the line by Yang Tao. He's the head of traffic engineering for the city. Thanks for speaking with me, Yang. I guess the first question I have for you is, the press release mentions that there has been a decline in traffic deaths since Vision Zero last year. Could you explain the data a little bit more?
6: You know, we are actually talking about the traffic fatalities and serious injuries uh, so for the data we provided uh, we really look at the, you know fatalities and serious injuries uh, together in any of the serious injuries could be a fatality uh, if the condition just changed a little bit and the fami- the family's lives of uh, the victims so uh, you know the number we're talking about um, in 2020 we had a combined fatality and a serious injuries of 126. Uh, in the city of Madison. Uh, So that includes, and, uh, you know, in 2021, so 2020 actually is the year uh, the city started the Vision Zero initiative, and I've been uh, uh, helping the city coordinating the the work of the staff team on that. So in 2021, uh, you know, we saw that number reduced from 126 to 104. And so that's a 17% uh, decrease. And then in 2022, uh, that number went down to 90 And uh, that's, uh, you know, a further 13% decline. And in total, if you look at, uh, you know, the number from um, 2020 to 2022, you know, the total decline actually is uh, 29%.
10: I'm curious, because you mentioned the switch from like 90 to 106, is it? I'm wondering, is that statistically significant? Like that, could that kind of change happen naturally in a year? Or is that unprecedented and only happening because of these changes of Vision Zero?
6: We observe, you know, this happens in two consecutive years. So I do feel like, you know, these numbers are very helpful, you know, telling us that we're doing something right. Uh, Also, uh, I think another piece of information we should look at is total number of uh, crashes. So from 2020 to 2022, the total number of crashes actually didn't go down. It actually went up slightly. However, though, it resulted a slightly number of injuries, but it resulted a significant number of reduction in fatalities and serious injuries. That actually is, you know, very uh, the very spirit of Vision Zero. Uh, you know, Vision Zero is a philosophy that uh, recognizes that humans make mistakes. Crash is going to happen. Instead of focusing our energy and resources on preventing crashes, we focus our attention on reducing the severity of the crashes uh, in order to save lives.
10: That's an important clarification. Thank you for sharing a little bit about that distinction between traffic deaths and traffic accidents. And going off of that, I'm curious, what types of traffic interventions is Vision Zero doing to kind of accomplish that less fatalities, even if we're not preventing accidents? I noticed decreasing speed speed limits was one of them. What are maybe some of those other initiatives?
6: So we're really trying to address the issue from all different angles: speed management, uh, engineering, education, uh, enforcement, engagement. Uh, you know, we also developed a comprehensive vision Vision Zero action plan. And you know, in our action plan, we identified comprehensive comprehensive strategies uh, in areas such as safe streets, safe people, safe vehicles, safety data, and safety-focused enforcement. But specifically, you know, for the last couple of years. Since we embarked on the program, you know, we did a lot of uh, speed management, pro- management projects. And we also, uh, you know, impact on many other you know, projects that's big and small. And, you know, our partners in the police department uh, also really, uh, you know, making uh, positive uh, changes on how they do enforcement. So the, uh, you know, that's what we call safety focused enforcement. So for the speed speed management that we did uh, quite a bit uh, because that's something that, uh, you know, the city can do quickly and it has immediate impact and at a very low cost. So we have been systematically reviewing the speed of our streets. Uh, you know, we saw a significant reduction in those percentages. A crash will be involved and when a crash do happen, uh, the higher the, the, the speed, uh, the worse the consequences. So, you know, really only A small decrease in vehicle speed make a big difference.
10: I do have one last question is, talking about these goals and initiatives, I know that the goal of Vision Zero is essentially to cut down to zero fatalities and serious injuries by 2035. Do you think that this is a reasonably achievable goal? And what other initiatives are you guys looking towards in the near future to achieve this goal?
6: Zero is the only accepted goal. When it's coming to traffic fatalities and serious injuries. So really, uh, all of us, you know, really deserve to have the guarantee on safety and knowing that uh, we will be, will be safe. It is, you know, a a goal that's very hard to achieve. But, you know, we are really encouraged by the, you know, experience we had in the last couple of years. Uh, You know, we saw the, uh, you know, safety reductions. Uh, You know, if we keep the, keep the momentum going, uh, you know, make more investments uh, on safety and continue to prioritize safety uh, as demanded by many of of residents, uh, it's not impossible to get there.
10: Thank you so much for speaking with me.
6: Okay. Thank you. Could I maybe add on one more message? Yes. Uh, you know, I want to take the opportunity to actually to thank our whole community for the collaboration on the success we've had so far. Uh, you know, it really, it's not just a city, it's a whole community. I want to encourage uh, residents and visitors to continue to work together with us on improving roadway safety. Thank you.
10: Thank you so much for speaking with me.
6: Oh, thank you so much, Abigail.
10: I've been speaking with Yang Tao, the head of Madison Traffic Engineering, about the decrease in traffic deaths since the Vision Zero plan launched in 2020. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins.
1: Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student publications, to learn the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Afonso spoke with campus news reporter Beth Shoup about the university's use of road salt to melt ice after snowstorms. (laughs)
8: welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso, joined today by campus news writer Beth Shoup to talk about salt use on campus. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Can you explain your story and why you wanted to write about it?
5: Sure. So my story is about the claims that the UW-Madison was using an excessive amount of road salt in order to clear the roads and create a safe way for cars and pedestrians to drive and walk around. And comparing that with the environmental impacts that can come from using rock salt, a lot of them are extremely negative. And there were a lot of tweets and images shown of certain roads on campus that had an excessive amount of rock salt and just talking about how that could be a negative impact and what the university is doing to be environmentally friendly and some suggestions from the from some organizations that focus on the environment.
8: Why was the UW accused of using too much salt and oversalting the campus?
5: There were some tweets that were posted by some people around campus. I believe one was from either a professor or a faculty member and there were images shown of a lot of excess salt but it turns out that the images that were being shown were not necessarily the roads that the university was in charge of clearing and salting. And so that was actually just another Madison property owner's property. And so the university wanted to explain that that's not actually what they're doing. They do think about the environment whenever they're using different types of melting agents. They talked about using sand instead of rock salt and things like that, and just understanding when salt is actually the most effective. So the university just wanted to be able to show that they do think about the environment. What are some of the
8: environmental impacts of using salt on sidewalks?
5: So what was explained to me is that in Madison all of our sewers lead into the lakes which means that anything you're putting on the road is going to eventually end up in the lake water which is something that we all value here it's a great attraction and so just any type of excess salt or sand that's put on the roads will eventually end up in the water and so it's a state or it's a city ordinance for property owners to sweep up any excess road salt, or sand or anything like that after it's done being used just to ensure that we can keep the least amount of salt or sand or anything else in the waters.
8: How does the UW
5: salt use mitigate environmental impacts? like you mentioned briefly? So the salt use like I said it whatever it ends up in the water it affects different ecosystems and can really harm different plant life and animal life in the water and so the university tries to use things like sand to prevent things like that ending up in the water because the salt is more dangerous than the sand is. So just doing things like that and trying to think of ways to not use salt if possible. It's not, rock salt isn't effective below certain temperatures. So pouring it on the roads won't do anything if it's below a certain temperature. Not clearing snow off of the roads before putting salt down also makes it ineffective. So, just really understanding what needs to be done in order for salt to actually be effective before just dumping it on the roads is really important.
8: Can you explain the Madison salt ordinance and how this relates to your story?
5: Sure. So, the Madison salt ordinance is a salt or is an ordinance that says that Madison property owners must use the least amount of salt possible and then they are required to sweep up any excess left on the ground once it's done being used and this is you could if you don't do this you can be subject to fines and things like that and so the university they said that they do try to follow this ordinance as much as possible but they are not subject to the same fines as every other madison property owner and so that was another issue that a lot of people were discussing in the Twitter thread. And so, um, yeah, it's just a way to ensure that the people of Madison are doing their job to keep the lakes and all of the waterways clean and reduce the salt usage.
8: You mentioned the slew of tweets that you linked in your article. Why do you think this brought so much heat online?
5: I think a lot of it was that UW-Madison is a powerhouse when it comes to environmental initiatives and so then people seeing these images of campus roads using all of this excess salt which has extreme negative environmental impacts it seemed a little contradictory but as i mentioned a lot of the pictures that were being showcased aren't of roads that are taken care of by the university so i think just those tweets Kind of stirred up a lot of discussion, and the university has now tried to clear up that those aren't roads that they take care of and they're just other Madison property owners.
8: How did the Clean Lakes Alliance marketing director, Adam Soderston, explain how oversalting affects Madison's economy?
5: So I talked about it a little bit. He said how when there's excess salt ending up in the water. It affects ecosystems, animals in the water, things like that. And a lot of people come to Madison or the greater Madison area to fish and just work with the water animals and things like that. And so if all of these animals are dying, starting at The smallest ones because they can't eat the plants and then growing to bigger fish that people are actually coming to Madison to fish for. If they can't have access to these animals because of the salt, then it's going to in turn affect Madison's economy.
8: What did you find most interesting or surprising when reporting this story?
5: I think the most surprising thing was probably just... The way that I never knew all of the negative environmental impacts of rock salt, I know it's used all the time and it's a common staple that most people turn to, but there are a lot of alternatives, as I mentioned, using sand instead of salt, and I also didn't, underst- I didn't know that below certain temperatures you can't use rock salt because it just won't be effective, so then adding it is just causing environmental harm and then i also had never thought about linking it to the economic impacts and uh soderson actually went further to explain that this if you by sweeping up excess road salt you're actually saving yourself money because then you won't have to continuously buy more if you use the recommended one copy coffee cup's worth for an entire driveway you're going to be using a lot less salt which will help you and in the future and it'll save you money.
8: Is there anything else you'd like to share or think readers should know about this topic?
5: I think the most important thing is just having people educate themselves on the environmental impacts. It's not a difficult thing for people to do. I think if it's if sand is just as effective but less harmful than rock salt, why not use that? And just seeing that the city is trying to do as much as possible to protect the waters that we all love to look at and love to do water sports in or see you whenever it's frozen, things like that. So just understanding that it's not that difficult to protect these things and you're going to have effective alternatives that allow you to do that. So just educating yourself to make sure that we're all working together to make progress. Thank you so much, Beth. Thank you. That's all for our Cardinal Call this
8: week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
1: It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
2: of skin, you probably think about that protective layer that covers our entire bodies. But for birds, skin can actually mean more than just that membrane, but harder feet tissue and softer feathers as well. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg looks at how the skins of a bird can vary drastically from species to species.
11: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, I want to talk about bird skin. I think that's a super weird topic, and you might too. But you know, it's actually something way more fascinating than you would think. And I've been thinking about bird skin this week because we've been training a lot of new volunteers, new interns. Our interns are one of the folks that get to learn some of our pre-veterinary skills, such as giving subcutaneous fluids. So subcutaneous fluids means sub under the cutaneous layer, which is the skin to a lot of different species including birds and giving subcutaneous fluids to birds is a weird thing in itself and it's it's really strange it's something usually pretty new to a lot of our people that are in and training because most people if you're going to train you might be giving an injection to your cat or to your dog and mammalian skin is a lot different than bird skin so i was thinking about it from that perspective and also from other perspectives like husbandry right now for example we are keeping care of three bald eagles. And when I think of bald eagles, I think, wow, we really need to make sure we've got the right kind of cage set up for their feet, which is the first thing we pretty much think of. And that might seem strange, but feet are like the most important thing we have to combat or worry about in terms of their integrity in rehabilitation when we have raptors. And that's because raptors have very sensitive skin and they have very sensitive feet. And why? Because raptors use their feet all the time for lots of different things. So I've been thinking about our birds in care and thinking about how we prevent issues with their feet or like injuries or problems from husbandry because it's very common in rehabilitation and education and zoos to get what's called bumblefoot or Dermatitis when you have very large birds, especially. So, we were thinking about skin from that perspective. But then I was also thinking about skin from a whole lot of other perspectives, like what are the varieties of different parts of the skin, or what can they look like in birds? So, wow, we could go forever, but we've got throats, neck pouches, wattles, combs, we've got the beaks, which are all different, the talons, the scales on their legs, and of course the feather growth, which is the outer layer. So you could think about skin in a ton of different ways, but I figured we'd just talk about a couple of them today for our segment here. And we'll start by talking about bird skin and giving fluids. So the first thing I mentioned was our interns learning to give fluids under the skin. And our bird species, so I'll just take our raptors for example, they can be pretty tricky to give fluids to, uh, mostly because of the way we handle them or, you know, it's a stressful procedure. But we are able to give fluids under the skin with something called, for example, lactated ringers, which is what you might potentially see in a hospital situation. If you think of like a banana bag and that's what you're getting because you're dehydrated, we have to do that kind of supportive care with our birds when they are first admitted. So for that example, we might use a small needle and a large syringe or a bag of fluids with an IV drip or something. So there are ways that you can give those fluids. One way is underneath the skin. And for birds, there's a few locations we give uh, safely. So you always, obviously, of course, would want to do this if only if you had a license or under the direction of veterinarians. It is very, very thin skin to get underneath. So it's different, again, than poking through your cat's skin, which has quite a bit of thickness to it. For birds, it's actually More like tissue paper. So, when I train interns about how to give fluids appropriately to birds, you know, you're just barely gracing the surface. It is very, very thin, easy to tear. You know, birds have adapted to have this very small layer of just tissue paper thin skin that covers the body. Different colors sometimes, different thicknesses in different places, but typically out from that, you'll have your feathers, which are all coming from a feather follicle, the feather shaft. And so the bird's feather follicle is underneath that layer of skin and they are growing out from the skin. So when we think of feathers, they're keratinous or full of carotene, right? So they're a form of skin and those feathers can come in all different colors and different textures, uh, different densities. You've got down feathers versus your structural feathers or your flight feathers, Remiges is what we might call them. And so those are all different types of outgrowths of the integumentary system, which is skin. So we've also got the eyes, we've got the bill, the area around the eyes, Um, we've got a lot of different sensory nerves underneath different parts of the skin. So when we were talking about bird feet and the sensitivity of things like raptors in rehabilitation, they have papillae on the bottom of their feet, which are these little outgrowths that have a specific nerve sensory Functions, some of which might be uh, adapted to prey, for example. So, if we think of something like an osprey, an osprey is going to eat primarily fish as a raptor. And they actually have some pretty specialized structures at the bottom of their feet that are sandpaper like in texture, which allow them to grip onto their fish better than something like an eagle would, which sometimes they drop those. We also have some birds that have longer toes and longer talons or ones that are really adapted to to catching a certain type of prey. So I think of excipitors like our Cooper's hawks and sharpshin hawks. They have extra long toes with extra long outgrowths in each of the digit sections to be able to grab on to birds effectively because they might eat a lot of songbirds, which the beak is also part of the integumentary system so it is part of the skin system some beaks are really really large honking beak on an eagle is really big and it's really sharp at the end, but it's going to be a lot different than something like your cardinals, which are really thick, but they're not hooked like raptors are, but it's meant for eating seeds and for breaking seeds open. So, you know, essentially we've got different functions for different types of skin and in all these different places. You might have a neck pouch that poofs out. Sometimes we'll see that in species like a prairie chicken, for example. They would have a lecking display, which is their mating display, where they poof out their neck pouch. And that's really cool. Sometimes they're brightly colored. I think of our turkeys that have the wattles and combs. Uh, Those are just really weird, strange skin outgrowths that are probably through sexual selection. That's probably how they revolved. But those make, you know, the male birds look really good or they use some of that in their mating displays. So those are some typical types of forms of skin. There's so many more that you could go into depth on. But I think uh, most importantly, we're looking at feather quality and rehabilitation, foot condition, which uh, we want to avoid that pododermatitis where lesions might open up on the bottom of the feet if you have, you know, poor husbandry or if you have the wrong size perches for raptors or the wrong type of substrate, because in the wild, they're not dealing with the same substrate over and over again. They're out there flying. They're landing on branches, they're all different. And so their sensitive feet actually can cause problems in rehabilitation. So for us, it's mostly feather condition. You know, are there feathers in good good care? You know, those are gonna molt out at different times of the year on different schedules, or you know, are their feet in good condition. So we catch them and do preventative foot care actually once a week on all of our raptors. But we're also looking at all of the other types of skin to see if there are other problems ongoing. Sometimes they're outgrowth, sometimes they're lesions, sometimes you've got a bacterial infection. There's so many parts of the skin that you have to cover. We want to make sure that all of them are covered appropriately and that that bird has adequate time to rehabilitate from whatever skin injury they came in with or one that they might get from husbandry or care. So lots of different things to talk about here today and to listen about, but bird skin is cool. That's, I think, the the bottom line is that there's a lot of different parts of birds, and the skin has probably some of the most variety, which is amazing to me. And it should be appreciated, I think, because mammals are a little bit more boring. Anywho, here's our (laughs) WORT segment for today. We hope you enjoyed listening here. And uh, thank you for listening in to Wildlife Weekly. And if you have any questions about wildlife or rehabilitation, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer and interviewer was Abigail Levens.
2: Your reporters were Greg Jabosky and Mike Moen with Wisconsin News Connection.
1: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Madeline Afonso, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal.
2: Dylan Brogan engineered the show.
1: Nate Wegge helped produce this newscast.
2: And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Make sure to subscribe tonight.
1: And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish-language News with the Noishar Patio. Good night.
9: Bienvenido a Nuestro Patio, un espacio en Word para la comunidad latina.
0: Panamá. Presente. Puerto Rico. Presente.
5: México. Presente. Venezuela. Presente. Perú. Presente. República Dominicana. Presente. Cuba. Presente. Costa Rica. Presente. Colombia. Presente. Hola, muy buenas noches y bienvenidos a una edición más de En Nuestro Patio, el programa en español de WORT 89.9 FM, la radio comunitaria. La hora es las 7 con un minuto, la temperatura, ahorita les digo, pero si ustedes han, se han asomado uh, por la ventana o han, o han salido en este momento, está lloviendo. Es una llovizna tranquila, pero es de esas que son es molestas simplemente. Eh, Estamos a 7 grados centígrados con una sensación térmica de 3 grados. Eso en Fahrenheit son 45 con una sensación térmica de 37 grados Fahrenheit. Está tibio el día, de hecho sigue siendo inusual. Estamos en febrero. Eh, El jueves si tienen la posibilidad de no salir, no salgan.